Good morning, everybody. I, I said in, uh, in first service not to, uh, and it's, you know, not to make excuses for myself, but man, when you're an amateur at this, you can blow your voice out on the very first song that you sing, and then you, you just hope you got something left when it's time to talk. But uh, that was, <laughs> that was uh, uh, it's some really good worship. Uh, when I began, my name is Rhonda Frazier. He, uh, he said that, anyway. Um, when I began writing for today, I found myself doing some theological gymnastics. I will not do actual gymnastics, but just theological gymnastics. Um, I would think of an incident or an experience that I could share, and then I would find myself stopping and questioning, wait, is that an attribute of Christ? Or was that more correctly the work of the Holy Spirit? Was that God the Father at work, or was that Jesus the Son? And can I use the name Uh, Jehovah Jireh to talk about provision in Jesus? Is that heretical to do so? Uh, Okay, so just welcome to a few seconds inside the brain. That is Rhonda Frazier. So that's me. Actually, once we kind of take this journey together, you might say, hey, can we go back to those theological gymnastics? Because this seems a little more like a theological circus. But come come along with me for the journey. Um, When we're going to get started, we're going to read a passage from Colossians. And we spent several weeks in the simple series in Colossians. And my heart was drawn back to this passage in chapter 1 as I thought about an anchor uh, verse for this today. And as we, uh, we're going to stand and read, and I'd like to ask you to do this. Would you read with me like you're reading uh, to a child? right? With, uh, with a, a little less monotone than we can get sometimes when we read, a little less perfunctory, uh, a little, maybe a little more feeling as we go along, okay? Uh, also, uh, I run pretty much at an 11 most of the time, you know, on the amp, so uh, that's why I'm asking you to do that. So here we go. Let's stand. Let's read the word. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him All things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Father, thank you for your word. May your word do work in our lives today. May our lives be shaped by it always. And Jesus, may we look more like you at the end of this day than we do right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. It has been so encouraging to hear the stories of uh, the testimonies that have come from the stage. April and Alan and James have done a great job in... uh, showing us and telling us uh, about what God's doing in their life, what God has done, how God's at work. And when we get to share people's testimonies, when we get to hear them, 
we, um, we're changed by that. And it, it bolsters our own faith when we get to see God at work in people's lives. And what we see is that when Jesus shows up in our lives, he brings the fullness of God. There's no lack, that's already been mentioned here today. There's no lack, he just brings everything that we need with him. Uh, this verse from Colossians is actually the foundational verse for my uh, class that I teach at Mount Juliet Christian Academy. It's uh, portions of it are laminated and hang on the wall and the bulletin board. And uh, I hope that you can kind of see uh, why that might be. Uh, I teach biology and chemistry uh, so that Words like, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. I get to think about this kind of stuff every single day at my job. And I teach from this perspective that it was God that was at work. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Don't you know that I cannot begin to think about protons and electrons and neutrons and ionic bonds and covalent bonds and strong nuclear force. And am I teaching a chemistry class right now? That's what I feel like. Can we, can we just go there for a few minutes? I cannot think about those things and how matter works and quantum physics and how it all miraculously comes together without understanding he is the one who spoke it into existence and holds it all together. And I love that I get to make that connection about God every day in my classroom. And, and don't tell anybody, I know this is on live stream, so this is really a very tricksy sort of thing that I'm about to do, but actually pieces and passages of this scripture and pieces and passages of a couple of other scriptures actually make up my several passwords that I use online. They do. You won't be able to figure it out. There's a lot of words. It's a pretty good algorithm that I've got going on. All right, so why, why do I do that? Why have I done that? I did that so when I have to log into my school email, I have to say part of that verse. When I have to log into my bank account, I have to say part of another verse. When I have to log in, uh, you know, to my, to just regular email or even shopping online, Amazon, for goodness sakes, has got something like this connected with it. It, it keeps, it makes something that can feel very separate and separated or mundane and ordinary in my life. It keeps it just covered up with the word, makes me think about God's provision and how I'm spending my time and what I'm going to do when I'm there. How have I seen Jesus bring the fullness of God into my life? And how have I seen him hold my life together? I am from uh, Gaffney, South Carolina. And if I were to, there have been two South Carolinians, two sand lappers who have spoken from this day. How in the world, what is a sand lapper for goodness sakes? I mean, actually, I know, don't, don't do that. But we have the worst nickname. That is just a terrible nickname, uh, especially when you live in the Piedmont and there's no sand anywhere. Um, so if I were to say, tell me you're from Gaffney without telling me you're from Gaffney, that would be something that somebody might show you. Because if you've ever traveled down Interstate 85, going between larger cities like Charlotte and Greenville, then uh, you have passed by uh, the burg that is Gaffney, and that is on the, uh, on the side of the road. Now, I will tell you, there is, a, there is a sign on the side of the road that says, exit to view the peach. That is the worst sign ever. You've been able to see that thing for miles. 
I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand what that, but I mean, they do have a parking lot there where you can go out and you stand and get a better view of the peach, but million gallons of water <laughs> up in that tank. And so that's, that, that's Gaffney. Let's get rid of that. There we go. <laughs> that's, where, that's where I'm from. And my dad still lives in Gaffney, South Carolina. My two sisters live there. My dad still lives in the same house that he moved into when I was three years old. Uh, my mom died in 2010. Um, and when I was six years old, I got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit in a revival led by Sister Howard, a very fiery lady evangelist. And later that year, I was baptized in Broad River by Brother Spencer, who had to tell me to breathe again because I had held my breath so long while he was doing his sort of uh, homily and introduction to baptism uh, before I got dunked in Broad River. <laughs> My dad got saved the same year, and after, we were already sort of a church family, but once my dad got saved, uh, we really became a church family. Family vacations, even, were, uh, were marked with finding a church of God to go to so that you could keep your perfect attendance Sunday school record. Now, that wasn't a slam on other churches. Oh, it might, might have been. But anyway, uh, you had to go to a church of God Sunday school in order to get it to count for your uh, Sunday school perfect attendance. So um, we did that everywhere we went. And um, since I was six, so that's been a long time. And if you can do some fast math, you'll figure that out by some other dates I'm gonna tell you in a minute, but I'm not gonna tell you right now how long that is. But um, since that day, I have walked completely imperfectly with Jesus. I love the tradition that I grew up in, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. I grew up with a church of spirit-filled believers, healing prayer services, gospel singing, YPE, Young People's Endeavor, Bible quizzing, choir competitions, choirs, youth camps, and rules. Lots and lots and lots of rules. You know, I think the media has it just a little bit wrong, or at least their writers don't know, because Catholics and Jews, get the, they get the, the, the really heavy lifting of carrying guilt in movies and stories. You don't know guilt if you didn't grow up Pentecostal holiness. I mean, I mean, I guess we all have our own cross to bear, but that's, you know, they don't have the total market on, on that situation. Following the rules, pride in following the rules, and fear of not following the rules ruled my life for a very long time. My younger sister, Bridget, who made me a middle child when I was 13 years old. Now, don't take that from me. I'm not the baby, although I was the baby for 13 years, but middle children get a lot of grace. So I just wear that middle child uh, label. It is my own. Uh, Bridget and I, uh, we joked later when we got comfortable with joking about it that we grew up feeling as if we were a white lie and a car wreck away from busting hell wide open. Just let that, just let that sink in for just a second. Yeah. Like I said, I loved my church tradition and somewhere along the way, I got a very wrong concept of the grace of Christ. I mean, I heartily sang as a child, deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. But grace, eh, grace is thin and taut 
and stretched out across a cavernous pit like a tightrope. And my staying on the thin line of grace was the only thing keeping me in Christ, or so my fearful spirit thought. Now, to my knowledge, I never heard a sermon with that illustration, but my lived experience demonstrated to me on the regular that my connection to Jesus was tenuous at best. One misstep of my own, one strong wind from the world, I would be toppled off the rope and plummet to destruction. Oh, I could get back on if I want, if I wanted to, if I worked hard enough, if I climbed back up to a position that would work. So staying on the rope was my job, my work, my struggle. Staying on the rope, seeming to depend completely on my works and my holiness, was completely divorced from the all-consuming power of Jesus to save me and keep me. I wish I could say that this faulty theology and wrong thinking was cleared up later in childhood or in my teens or as a young adult in college. No, no. I was a full-grown woman with a mortgage and three children about 20 years ago. I was walking in my neighborhood, praying, contemplating some things that had coming up in sermons and and still struggling with this issue of measuring up and trying to perform and trying to keep it all together and balance all the things. And as I was praying and walking, an image came to mind and the image of this tightrope came to mind. It's like, that's that's, that's it, Lord. That is exactly how I feel like my life is. I'm, I'm, I'm just here. And in this picture that I got, I could just see just the few inches of the tightrope in front of my feet. And in real life, I have a fear of heights. And that was not a comforting position to be in to kind of get an image of what that actually looks like. And as I was looking and gazing at the rope in front of my feet and balancing there, seeing myself so precarious, in my mind, it's like the camera sort of panned around and gave me a different view, a little higher and, and to the side where I could see my whole self on this tightrope, still on the tightrope. And y'all, y'all, my focus moved from the tightrope to this massive, strong safety net that was stretched out as far and as wide as I could see, covering every inch of the opening of this cavern that I thought was my destiny. It was the grace of Jesus spread out, ready, ready to catch me when I fall. Because I fall. Can't do it in my own strength. It is him and his grace. I cannot tell you what a gift that image was to me. I really, even though I've tried to describe it today, I can't describe it and I can't describe to you the freedom and peace that I began to walk in from that day and I can't tell you the number of times when I have moved into performance mode or tried to carry too many things of my own, do things that weren't mine to do, that Jesus just brings me right back to that image and says, hey, 
look at the net. This is not your work to do. When I fall, his grace catches me. If you're feeling the stress and tension of trying to balance all of life's expectation in your own power, maybe today you too can feel the freedom of completely falling into the safety net of his grace that Jesus has spread out for you. The Jesus I know is a powerful safety net of grace. I did not get accepted into my college of choice. This was a devastating turn of events for Rhonda Mathis in her senior year, uh, second semester of senior year. Uh, Actually, my pride was hurt. My school friends were all headed to really great schools. Derek was headed to Duke, and David was headed to Furman. Kim was going to Clemson. And I had not gotten accepted into the College of Charleston. Apparently, I was going to be doomed to go to USCS, the University of South Carolina at Spartanburg. Not even Columbia, right? Not even, I didn't even get to go to the main campus. It's, you know, it was going to be the university. It's, anyway, I'm not dissing on them. I'm just saying it was not my, it was not my, that was not where I was looking to go. <laughs> Devastated is completely the right word about how I was feeling and pretty embarrassed. I put all my eggs in that one basket that had a big old hole in it. I remember kneeling in my bedroom as a senior in high school, trying to figure out what my options were. Uh, Did I even have any options? Was this one school the only place I was gonna get to go? And I was praying and lamenting in the way that uh, a person who turns up to 11 can. And, And I heard a voice say, and I'm going to use the word heard there, because the presence and the sense of this phrase that I heard when I was praying was so powerful that that's all I can do is say I heard it like I heard it with my ears. You haven't even considered Lee. Well, thank you, Lord. No, I haven't. You mean that little, you mean that little Church of God school that's over in Cleveland, Tennessee that my parents made us tour? My grandparents made me tour the time we went from Memphis to, to Gatlinburg on this big, long road trip? That, that school that sends people to sing at camp meeting and, and youth camp and stuff? That, that's what you want me to think about that school? You haven't even considered Lee. I had not. So what do you do in the spring of 1980 when the Lord says, you haven't considered Lee, you, you think you better consider Lee. So, you, you know, uh, you pick up your landline and you dial one. You, then you look up what the area code is for Tennessee. And at that time, it was all just one area code. Uh, so you dial 1-615-555-1212 and ask for the telephone number of Lee College. And since it's late at night, because you're praying in your bedroom, you got to wait till the next day to call and you call the front desk and you talk to Betty Baldry. She's delightful. I went to church with Betty for a really long time. So um, you call and Betty Baldry answers and she takes your name and your address and she's going to send you in the mail. 
a college catalog and an application, which you can fill out with pen, with pen and then fold it and mail it back. This was not a quick process. So those things began to roll in, and I considered Lee, and I applied to Lee. And what I quickly also began to realize is that what I was signing up for and what I was asking my parents to pay for was more than they had anticipated and more than they had. And then in the next few months, the things that fell into place that allowed me to get some scholarships and get some funding that paid for more than half my tuition for my entire time that I was at Lee just fell into place. And that's a story of God's provision for another day. At Lee, I majored in chemistry and biology because I like the easy way. I had lots of ideas about what I might want to do with that chemistry and biology degree, and uh, none of them came to be. In fact, right after college, the types of jobs that I had and most of the work that I did, it would have been so much better had I been an English major or a PR or business or marketing major. Those were the things that I was working in, and that would have served me better, or so I thought. But the one who holds it all together. Jesus knew me and he knew what I needed to know even if I wasn't going to tap into it for 20 years later. Do you remember me saying that I teach chemistry and biology? Well, there's someone here, Melanie Gallioni, who wouldn't also stop asking me if I would consider to come and teach somewhere about <laughs> Uh, to teach chemistry uh, somewhere. And that's another story of provision and blessing that we can share another day. So instead of writing papers in college and crunching numbers, I spent hours and hours in the science lab and in classes that kept me chained to my desk. In fact, it was in one of those labs during a particularly difficult assignment and trial that I took myself out of the lab and Jesus met me on the back steps of the science building and just breathed and spoke love to me from his word and started to do some healing about fear that I had about my own academic performance. The Jesus I know is a great academic advisor. Is there a place of disappointment in your life right now where Jesus may be whispering to you, you haven't even considered what might an act of obedience bring? What fulfillment or joy or service or preparation might be available to you if you listen to that prompting? I do not know the first time that I saw Michael Frazier. He's uh, older than me. And uh, that's not a slam, he just is, it's just a fact. You don't have to like the facts, but they, that is a fact. Uh, he's older than me and he had already graduated from Lee. Oh, he went to Lee, I went to Lee. But he spent, about, he spent quite a bit of time on campus because of his connections with the music department. Um, but I do know exactly where I was the first time we had a conversation 
Well, conversation is probably a loose way to describe what happened. I think I did a lot of talking and he probably did a lot of smiling and nodding. Um, but uh, I was, it's just the truth. Um, I was, in, I was in DZT. Now, that's Delta Zeta Tau. It's a, it's a Greek social service club only. It would be sort of like a sorority, except it, Christian. So they don't call it that. Uh, and anyway, and every year we hosted a Valentine banquet for the campus. Now, at another school, this would have probably been a raucous dance, but remember, it's Church of God school, so we don't dance. So we were just opting for food and romantic music that no one was dancing to, and all of this was being served up in a high school cafeteria. We spared no expense. So (laughs) my task that February 1983 was to hire the band. And by hire the band, uh, let me be clear, that was asking my friend Chip Frazier if he could get a couple of his buddies together uh, to put a little jazz combo to play, you know, some music during, uh, during the festivities. That particular evening, uh, the main decorations in the high school cafeteria, recall, uh, <laughs> were these large hearts. And when you bought your tickets for the Valentine banquet, they'd ask you, who's your date? So they had these large hearts prepared with names beautifully written on them. You know, you know, names like Alan and Renee, you know, and uh, or uh, Charlotte and Evan, Angie and Ricky. Those are people, you know, at the at the banquet. Uh, Mario and Melanie. Right. I had a heart on the wall. You know what my heart said? Rhonda and the band. <laughs> now, remember, it's 1983 and, you know, things have changed. That would be, that would be a major no-no today. I don't even know. What, what, who, I don't know if that was my idea. It probably was. I have no idea. Or if it was one of my friends being a joke, I, who knows? But anyway. That, so that, that's what it was, run to that. I, had no, I did not have a date to the, to the banquet, and I was sitting at the table with the three male musicians, so that's that. <laughs> During the course of the dinner, I casually say to Michael, you know, I used to have a crush on you. Now, yeah. Have you ever, like, you know, you say something, then, like, time stops, and you, like, just see all, you, like, see atoms and molecules start to move, (laughs) and and you just want to go, or scoop, you just want to scoop the words back up and shove them right back in your mouth? It, It was, it was out there, man. It was just out. idea what else was said that evening. None of it was memorable after that. But I did, when I made my way back to my residence hall, I told my roommate Cindy, I was like, you will not believe what I said at dinner tonight. I don't even know why I said it. I don't even know if it's true. And then I was all guilted about that. And then I was like, but I do know that I wrote it on my Ziggy calendar to mark the travesty of the date. February rolls into March, and March rolls into April, and I'm playing a softball game with these same group of girls, DZT, and I get asked if I would like to go with everybody to an arcade. Do I look like I play arcade games? Do you think I played, do you think I had time? 
I am a chemistry and biology major. Do you think I have time to play arcade games? But I went because I had FOMO before FOMO was actually a thing. That's fear. That's fear of missing out, and if you don't know. But anyway, in the lingo, I just want to keep it real and touch point for the kids. Nobody says it anymore, do they? I don't know. Anyway, guess who was at the arcade? Michael Frazier. <laughs> Michael was at the arcade, and he was camped out at what I soon learned to be was a stand-up Galaga game. And he had, he was seeing just how far that token he had dropped in would take him and if he could indeed get his initials on the high scoreboard. I'm not sure how I made my way over to the Galaga game. I don't know if it was a slow turn around the room working up to it or if, if I just barged right over. I bet you can guess what it was. It was most likely the barge. And I watched him play forever. <laughs> he could make a token go a really long way. And I think he had, I think he had like a whole stack of tokens. I think this, this little arcade, you could be, you paid a dollar and you got five or six tokens on certain nights. It was a, it was a really good deal. They said, I don't know. Anyway, I, I didn't seem to be distracting him too much from his Galaga game. <laughs> Finally, someone mentions that he and his roommates are having some friends over to watch a movie. They had gotten their hands on the latest technology of the day, which was a laser disc player. And it was movie night. I'm telling you, we are just taking a romp through history right here. Is that not true? <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if he invited me or if Chip invited me or if I invited myself, but I went, and that was April the 8th. The next Sunday morning, I convinced one of my friends to drive me over to Westmore Church of God instead of us walking up to North Cleveland um, because Michael played the orchestra, played in the orchestra at Westmore. I have no idea what Pastor Henson spoke on that day, but I do know that I waited at the back of the church for Michael to finish packing up the orchestra for what seemed like an eternity. If you think he can play Galaga for a long time, you just wait until he starts working with his charts and his trumpet and just getting all that stuff in order. He's meticulous and, and uh, deliberate about that. And maybe now, I was, maybe he was giving me time to leave. <laughs> it could be, I don't know. Uh, we went to lunch, which was not pre-planned, and we spent a lot of time together those next few weeks, like every day. And um, before I headed home to South Carolina for the summer, I told my mom that there was someone she and my dad needed to meet when they came to pick me up to take me home. At this point, when I tell the story, I always feel like a stalker. You know, I'm the crazy girlfriend in the movie. The one you might need a restraining order for. <laughs> It's not a good look, I know. Here's what I didn't know then. Michael, who had not dated much in college, had basically said to Jesus, if you have someone for me, you're going to have to drop her in my lap. Michael says 
says that he even mentioned the kind of crush comment to a mutual friend that we had, and the guy was like, hey, you should do something about that. And Michael's like, that's not how I do. (laughs) He had asked God to do the planning. Y'all, we went back to the Valentine banquet next year as husband and wife. And we were a part, we were a part of the entertainment that weekend, that, that night too. And we shared, we actually shared love songs that we had written to each other because that's what you do when you're in college and you think that they're awesome. And, but I will, I will spare you all of them or any of them now. To the casual observer or unbeliever, all this could seem to be a delightful story of coincidence and chance, serendipity even. But I believe that all those happy accidents were orchestrated by a loving divine matchmaker who knew that Michael needed a woman who was willing to blurt out affection, invite herself over, and stalk him at church. (laughs) And Jesus in his immense kindness to me, certainly knew that I needed a man with the faith to say, God, I trust you with this now and always, this and everything. The Jesus I know holds everything together. Jesus has brought the fullness of God into my life in so many ways, and sometimes the fullness of God's love and kindness and mercy and rescue show up in a person. Some of you in this room have been that person for me at various times, but I'd like to talk to you about the summer of 1996. The Summer Olympics were going to be in Atlanta. And it was, uh, it was uh, the middle of the summer, and there was a kids' musical out that year called Hans Bronson and the Gold Medal Mission. And we were performing that at, a, at the church that we attended at the time. And Daniel, my son Daniel, who's seven, actually had a solo in that little musical. And it was a solo about being baptized. And it was all really awesome because he was actually going to be baptized that day. We didn't have a baptistry at the church. So he was going to be baptized at Stormy and Michael O'Mardian's house. And after the... Um, uh, after the service, after the baptism, there's going to be, you know, refreshments and the kids are going to play in the pool and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so Daniel got baptized. Andrew's three. Susanna's in the house with us. Michael's parents are in from Haiti. Uh, his dad had gotten ill and had, had to have surgery and uh, it was very, very hot. So he was a little overcome by the heat that day. So we were in the kitchen with him and my friend Carla Schober who was on staff at the church, had been ministering and praying with someone in the, be- in the living room and, or the, the back room. And she, she, Carla tells it this way. She said, I, I looked up out across the pool and I was like, there's a lot of kids in the pool. There's a lot of adults not paying attention to the kids in the pool. And so she got up and through what she felt like was the prompting of the Holy Spirit, she got up and walked outside. She walked outside and did not stop, walked straight into the pool and grabbed our Andrew out of the approaching deep end of the pool. What could have been a tragedy that day turned into a time of rescue. Andrew had just been bobbing in the pool, you know, going to the bottom and popping up, but all the activity in the pool, all those that was pushing him closer and closer to the deep end until he was under the water. He was bouncing back off, but just longer and longer to getting up, grabbing a breath and going back down. In only a way that 
I can, trying to make light of a terrible situation. On the way home, we're asking Andrew, because he got back out and played in the water and it was, you know, he, he seemed to be fine. We wanted to kind of see with his little three-year-old heart how it was sitting with him all. So we're driving home to Smyrna from Nashville and say, hey, everybody, did you have fun at the, in the pool today? Did you have a good time? Daniel got baptized. Was it a good time? And Andrew, from his car seat in the back, said, do you think it's fun to be in water over your head? No. But he didn't have to stay in the water over his head because Jesus sent Carla Schober to walk right out into the pool. Jesus sometimes sends people into our life to do that. You know what he also does? Sometimes he's gonna ask you to get up and walk into the pool and grab the person who needs to come out. The Jesus I know meets me in my prayers. The Jesus I know meets me daily in his word. The Jesus I know orders my steps and gives me direction. The Jesus I know knits our hearts together with others, sometimes in marriage and always inside families. The Jesus I know spreads wide his grace and it's ready today and again and again for us to fall safely into. That's the Jesus I know.